Welcome to the Thresholds podcast brought to you by Rahamim Ecology Centre. Sharing the voice of pioneers in spiritual ecology, facilitating new and ancient wisdom for the challenges of our earth community. This particular recording is the edited interview. We also have longer uncut versions available on our website along with show notes to accompany each episode so you find out more about all the ideas, people and books mentioned in the show. Are you a fan of the Thresholds podcast? Why not support us so we can keep bringing you these interviews? You can now easily donate online by hitting the Donate Now button at the top of the Thresholds podcast page on our website, www.rahamim, that's R-A-H-A-M for Mary, I-M for Mary, .org.au. Or simply type Thresholds Podcast into Facebook and hit the like button on our Facebook page. Don't forget to share our page with your friends. Brenda Pettigrew has been a Sister of Mercy of Newfoundland and Labrador for 51 years. She's worked as a high school teacher, vacation director, diocesan director of adult faith development, retreat leader and facilitator of chapters and assemblies of religious communities of women and men for 25 years in many parts of the world. Presently, she lives in northern Ontario on a river in a forest, writing, guiding religious congregations and steeping in the natural world. We spoke to Brenda online between Rahamim and the wilds of Canada. Welcome to Thresholds, Brenda Pettigrew. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a privilege and an honour to be asked. Yeah, well, you're our first international guest and you're in the mm. wilds of Canada, uh, northern Ontario. Can you describe where yes. you are at the moment? Yes, I live about two and a half hours northeast of Toronto, which m most people will be familiar with the city name, but not with where I am, which is called the Algonquin Highlands. Mm. And Algonquin is a uh, First Nations word. We call our native people here First Nations. Mm. And it was formerly their territory. And we have a practice here uh, in our retreat centers um, all over Northern Ontario that we don't start any event without honoring the, the particular uh, native people or tribe that has... Uh, owned this land and were driven out by when the white people came. So we're kind of reclaiming the name, uh, the land in the name of the tribe. So we start everything with that thanking, in this case, the Algonquin people. And uh, the forest where I live is very thick with trees. It's just, you might have heard of Algonquin Park. It's a very internationally famous park. Mm -hmm about 20 minutes north of here. And I think we're called Algonquin Highlands because uh, the township um, and the county borders on this park. Mm. And it's a very, very big, well, you, you're used to big areas in Australia. So yeah. um, it's a very big forested area where the Algonquin people used to live. And we have two and a half acres here mostly forest and we uh, the house is right on the edge of what is called um the um uh, river we call it we call it our algonquin river i feel extremely lucky to be living in, among the trees yeah 
So you are a sister of mercy of the Newfoundland group and um, I, I want to hear all about that. But first, can you take us back to your early days, uh, to your childhood and your religious background growing up? Tell us a bit of your story from that side of things. Okay, so I was, uh, I was born in St. John's in 1947 and <clears throat> my, um, my dad was one of 12 children and uh, with the families were big in those times and he was from Scotland and Ireland, um, his parents, my grandparents. And um, then my mother was more from England, uh, her family was, but my, uh, my mother was, her, her dad died at 36 and she was in, interestingly enough, our orphanage, the Sisters of Mercy of St. John's. Uh, for two years with her little sister, and uh, when she came out, she was she was quite traumatized. So my mother was, uh, you know, I, I have come to really understand her her dilemma. And uh, we ha I had uh, three younger brothers, and two of them have died in the last um, five years. And uh, so. But my mother was quite insistent, and now that I know the whole story, this is an interesting thing. She was quite insistent that I go to the, to the Sisters of Mercy school, mm -hmm. even though she didn't have a, a really good experience with the, with the Sisters of Mercy in the orphanage. But I went to the Sisters of Mercy school, and um, I loved it. That's all yeah. I can tell you. I just, the, the sisters were then were all quite young. They were in their 20s. And they roller skated in the gym after school and they would make fudge and, you know, help, we would help them and we'd get to do a big sale every year. And, but there was a great sense of understanding and camaraderie. And I think it was because in those years, the early fifties, the government did not run the schools. So the sisters yeah. were totally in charge of the schools. And so we could have whatever kind of a schedule we we liked. And one of the things that stands out for me is that every Friday afternoon in our school, it was a creative day. And it didn't matter what grade or class you were in, you could go to art, you could go to help at the school newspaper, you could learn sewing, you, any number of things. And you went around to the school. Nobody stayed home from school on Friday afternoons. <laughs> And we loved, we loved, the sisters at that time were mostly quite young and they were, they were easy and, and, and uh, fun loving in lots of ways uh, with all of us and, and very creative. The Sisters of Mercy were very creative and that's, that felt like home for me. Mm. So it was a, a great community to belong to. So no wonder now when I look back over all those years. It's no wonder then that after the last year of high school, I I just, the next natural step was to enter with the Sisters of Mercy, which I did at the age of 17. Wow. How did your experience of the natural world growing up in Newfoundland impact your childhood and, and the way you are now? Well, I, it's only now I'm thinking about how I'm really circling back to my childhood because... As I said to you, uh, Dad had uh, 11 brothers and sisters, and most of them lived in what we called the country at that time, which means outside the city. 
in the forest. But my mother was a real city woman, and she would not live there year-round. So we actually lived in, in the city in St. John's, and the last day of school every year, Dad, uh, you know, had been given some land, the same as his brothers and sisters, and he built a small little house on it. So the last day of school every year for all of my elementary school and part of my high school years, we would pack up everything and go into the country, as we called it, into the forests and and the rivers and the ponds that were there. And for two months, would I would have only my all my first cousins to play with. And we, we really explored and hiked and tented and picked berries. And so it was a country life um, every year for two months. And I think there was some way, I, I haven't been able to really pinpoint it until recently, because I'm, I'm writing a memoir now. Mm. Many, many things are coming back to me that I hadn't thought of before. But I think those two months every summer were were key in my in my internal shaping as well as every other way even though i haven't been aware of it until these last few years as i've kind of looked back over things but i think those years really grounded me in being at home in forests and trees and and uh, a lot of my i don't know if you have any of my poetry books do you uh, you've sent me some. Yeah, so I have okay. read some of your poetry, yeah. Okay, so some of the poems really show that. Yeah. They show the connection with the trees and with the natural world. And it wasn't until I actually began to write some of those poems that I realized how basic and deep was that connection. So th- that really explained why... 15 years ago, when I finished the PhD, I mean, it, it was the actual week I had my defense. And then three days later, Joan, my housemate, and I came up here where we live now looking for a place to live and uh, and found one in three days. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> yes, and we knew this was the place, and we've been up here ever since. Mm. So, And it gets more and more... How can I say this to you? It gets more and more concrete and real to me. Uh, every every few weeks I notice. I f- it's not about feeling at home here. It's about an actual, uh, a visceral kind of connection of belonging among the trees and the river and the rocks and and the uh, all the growth of of the forest and uh, a sense of belonging you know i can hardly bear i don't even go into toronto now i can hardly bear it mm. it it's really a mad place every year but i i do go as far as the airport that's it <laughs> <laughs> and um but the peace of belonging here is deepening i think every year and some of it comes from I don't know if you've heard of a man called Robert Sardello. Yes. Okay, so Sardello was my teacher oh. for about 10 years. And he introduced me to silence in a very visceral way and um, and many other dimensions and, and certainly presence of the heart in prayer. So, so prayer as heart presence and presence to people mm-hmm. rather than meditating in some of the other traditional ways and on this property on the edge of it 
I have and have had from the beginning, my own small little trailer. And it's hidden mm. in the in the woods now. I mean, it's overgrown practically now. But I go there every morning for two hours, sometimes three in the summer. And, um, and I just, I'm there in complete silence and solitude. Sometimes I write, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I just take in the trees that are now growing into the trailer. I mean, they're, they're growing every year closer and I'm going to have to trim some this year, but it's really about being uh, in complete silence and solitude. And then sometimes I will write and, uh, and sometimes I won't, sometimes I'll just lie there and, uh, or sit at the desk, the table and, uh, and wait. It's like I, I wait for whatever, is the presence for that day. Mm. It seems to me you, you've had a long journey to get to that point and a lot Very. of struggle, a bit of a wild ride. Uh, yes. As you write about, um, I mean, so much of original fire, the hidden heart of religious women was probably getting you to that point where you feel completely at home, belonging amongst the trees and yeah. having that affect your work as well and... Um, I'm wondering um, if you can take us on a bit of a journey of why original fire needed to be written. I know that it was, um, I know it was the only the only book of its kind to come out that really told that story of the hidden heart of religious women. Uh, I I'll tell you exactly because as you were even wording the question, I was remembering that I need to talk about a very. Uh, probably the most significant turning point in my life, which I th I believe now led to Original Fire. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, in the late 80s. I was uh, director of adult religious, uh, we called it adult faith development in, in the Archdiocese mm -hmm. of St. John's. And um, I think I was like four years into the work when... We had uh, tw 26 uh, out of 43 priests arrested for child abuse in a space of a year and a half. And it, it was horrendously traumatic for me and for the other sisters who worked at the diocese. Three of us, three of my community, Mercy's, worked at the archdiocese at that time. One was director of liturgy, one was director of social justice and I was director of adult faith and um, we tried to you know really work with the people and to move through this but the priests really turned against us and blamed us for keeping it going they said keep we were keeping it going they refused to talk about it publicly or to their their parishioners or anything so it was it was a trauma for the three of us, we all responded in different ways. But my way was to, after a couple of years of trying, to go to Toronto for a um, sabbatical year. And that was kind of the turning point, I think, that led to original fire. I had, I had a lot of uh, psychological work to do around that issue. Uh, the church had always been central to my life. Um, and the devotion and the spirituality of the community as well. And I had to take an entire year to really uh, recover and work with a woman every week 
to come to terms with this. And when I, I did, I realized I could not go back. I could not go back into that work and into that, into that uh, archdiocese at all. And so um, I met a, a woman, well, I had met her in a, a meeting that she facilitated for the archdiocese in the last year I was there. Marge Dennis was her name. Mm-hmm. Uh, she did a lot of work in Australia as well. And she invited me to come to Ontario. She lived, her house was only like 40 minutes from here. And I was in the first group of people she trained to do process facilitation. And then I was working with that with a few groups. When she invited me, she said she was having too much work all over the world. And she invited me to actually move to Huntsville, where she was living and working, and sent me out to many countries in the world over the last 30 years to facilitate mostly orders of religious women uh, and that's how I got in. I was I started by doing chapters, and then I I started to see in the last several years the diminishment and the. Um, I worked oh I worked with Dermot O'Merku and wrote some things for one of his books also, and he was kind of my support. I mean he 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 wrote the introduction to Original Fire as well. But we were on a similar word about uh, perceiving what was happening. And um, so that's how I came to get into really um, leading the congregations very gently into a place of acknowledgement, especially, especially when nobody was entering them. So after, what, 15, 10 or 15 years, many of the sisters were then beginning to question and saying what you know their first layer of questioning was what did we do wrong Mm -hmm. and my role which you can see in original fire is not about what we did wrong but um, really helping them to see that we are part of a larger transformation that's happening in the world and we're only a little part of that and also how religious life has always transformed. I mean, that's Dermot O'Merku's book, Religious Life in the 21st Century, really shows, best of all, I think, how over 3,000 years, I think he traces, that there's always been a form of religious life. It, it comes up, it goes down, it comes up, it, it, it's always different. And so it is a natural way of being in the world. It's just that we, in this time, are the ones who are seeing the diminishment of the form that we have lived. And so I think part of a lot of my work has been gently nudging congregations to see that bigger picture with greater or lesser success, because many are caught in it and, uh, and cannot get beyond or cannot see that big picture. I think when I came to that conclusion, after 20 years of and 25 years of facilitating chapters was when I kind of bridged over into doing a lot of uh, teaching in contemplative presence and contemplative um, kind of being with the reality. And uh, so I've been doing that now for five or six years and writing papers on it. And and some of the, the congregations are able to go there, but mostly because 
they're, they're so eldering now that the elders don't have the energy we had even 10 years ago to be dealing with a lot of these things. So when I recognized that too, that's when I really found I needed the bridge to um, first validate their lives and second, uh, do what I can to kind of lead them into uh, acceptance, you know, knowing what was happening, knowing that we were part of something really much bigger, knowing that um, there's always a form of religious life and what we need to do is start to learn to let it go, our, our way of seeing it. Mm-hmm. So all of those things were what came out of writing Original Fire. Mm-hmm. It strikes me that it's such a trailblazing book, given that it was written more than 15 years ago, and it's still selling. It's still selling on Amazon, and it was a book that was quite difficult for my own community to accept Mm. they never they wouldn't allow me to um, have a a book launch of it Mm. they wouldn't support it I had um, the the leadership at the time did you know did support it but uh, they wouldn't allow me to have a book launch there Uh, they and then I started to get really significant critical almost what I'd call hate mail Mm. from 12 or 14 members of my own community about this book. It was quite um, kind of (laughs) shocking for me. It took me, it took me a couple of years. I mean, I put the book away and I said, Oh my God, I can't, I can't, I can't take this in. So it, it was, it was, you know, it was from my own community that the difficulty was not from other communities at all. I didn't have any of that kind of feedback from anyone else. And it. Um, so I just considered it, um, okay, you know, this is something that many people go through. When, when you write something that is beyond the norm and beyond uh, the usual way we do things and talk about things and and, you know, I meet, I meet, I go, I go home to meetings all the time and I meet them and stuff, but I'm very careful. Uh, they, some of them still don't speak to me um, and others kind of have forgotten it. And they say, oh, you know, well, you're still, you're still with us kind of thing. But it's, um, it stays very, very close to me and reminds me of how, what I wrote so you know, amazingly in that time was really so far outside of many sisters' experience. And I I guess it has helped me to, when I'm preparing talks and preparing processes to take communities through, uh, it has helped me to kind of, you know, realize that many of the women that I work with can't really take that in very well. So, so it, it has tempered my work with it quite a bit. But uh, when I read it for you, I mean, the last couple of days I've read it quickly again. I thought, oh, my gosh, maybe it's time now. Mm. Maybe it's time now to kind of bring back some of the processes and the questions and especially the ones towards the back. So by your invitation, you have given me a, a kind of a, a new boost mm. to bring it back a little bit in my own work. 
I can't imagine how painful that must have been to experience so much hate mail from oh, your own community. And was, yet you remain part of that community. I do, and I did. I mean, I, I, I used to talk about it with, you know, the people who are my circle and my friends. Uh, I used to say, my vocation is not to the community because of those women, mm. you know, because of the members. I think one of the things it did was to really force me to examine what was my vocation. Mm. And it wasn't to those women. I mean, they're a minority in the community. There's probably 12 or 14 who did that. And there was, at that time, about uh, 100, 110 in the community. So, I mean, it helped that I was not living there. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I don't know what I would do if I was living there and had to come face-to-face with them every day. But living in Ontario I ha- and in the forest, I was able to process inside long enough that I could come to see that, yes, it was very painful and I received no support at all from the leadership at that time. And uh, But still, I can remember, you know, struggling with, but my vocation is not to the leadership. My vocation mm-hmm. is not to those nuns. It's to it's to Catherine Macaulay's feisty spirit, mm. you know. Mm. It's, it's look at all the opposition and criticism she had, and so that's the way I I worked with it until I need I could let it go and could go home to meetings. One of the things that came up that I found particularly interesting about Original Fire was uh, the gap between the feminist principles that were being adopted and actually living them out at that time when the book was written, and that yes. this amounted to the lack of value given to life experience in a communal way of individual members. Yes. yes. Um, and I purposely wanted to point out that gap mm-hmm. because I, I really think that it's that gap that we have not been able to cross uh, in the sense that, as I said, when I entered, we were all 17, 18, we had no life experience. Our life experience was in the community. And then it was also subject to a, a quite a now, we would judge it, repressive spirituality and um, very contained and structured religious life. And, and now, you know, women from the age of what, 15, it's like a, it's a different world. I mean, I have grandnieces that I privilege to know and watch go through stages and I often think oh my dear god this is a different world than we knew and one of the things this helped me to do was to realize that what I was proposing in original fire and finding from some sisters at least who are willing to tell their stories was mostly incomprehensible to the bulk of the women who entered when they were 17 and 18 because there was no personal development allowed. Mm. I mean, it was, it was sinful, considered sinful then. I was lucky to be, you know, a novice when Vatican II ended and then the whole world changed the next year and we were given all the opportunities that I talked about. But, I mean, there were, there were generations of, a, of our community before that time who who never went there, you know, it was hard enough for them to make the changes, but they certainly didn't go into the personal 
development that we were given uh, the opportunity and the encouragement to go into. So it is a, a lot like <clears throat> living between worlds. Mm -hmm. Today, when I was thinking about it, I'm getting ready for you, I was, I was thinking we still, many of us still live between worlds. You know, we entered very young, and now we're just really dealing with the dissolution of this way of life. So it's between worlds again. And that has been, I think that has been our calling. Maybe that's the next, uh, the follow-up to Original Fire, that we have lived all these years kind of trying to make the changes of Vatican II. They never quite took because they weren't really supported by clergy and other parts of the church. So uh, there's a there's a kind of a, a hazy, cloudy place that uh, many of us probably still live our lives in. And one of the ways that I find my community, but I think in general many communities deal with this, it took on the form of a great emphasis on ministry at the expense of the spirituality and the spiritual practices in life that brought us together originally. And uh, everything now is about doing. What will we do? What is our mission statement? What will? And, and uh, I remember in the last few years, every time I go home, the congregation leaders all say, well, what are you doing? You know, what are you doing for your ministry? And that's the only question. And so <clears throat> that's what many sisters have unconsciously come to measure themselves by is what they are doing. Mm -hmm. And we, we don't have, in general, many uh, spiritual practices that really draw us together. Not that we want to go back to, to the Herarium and you know everybody going to the chapel at the same time to say the office in Latin or something. But I think we have really advanced in ministry, but nothing else. Mm. I don't think we have really given uh, the time and energy to our spirituality, our, our communal gathering for spiritual practices or anything like that. I think that kind of got lost after Vatican II when the emphasis all became on ministry. In the book yeah. you also talk about the another struggle, which is the struggle to find language for the feminine, <clears throat> like just, just to change the pronouns in prayers <laughs> or whatever language, you know, for spirituality that you're using. That doesn't make it feminine. That's right. And that's, as I was reading this in the last few days, I thought, oh, my gosh, we're still, we're still really struggling to even know, to even know what is the feminist and feminine approach. And to me, feminist is not a bad word, as it still is to a lot of people. Mm. I just think it's, it's mm, kind of the strong word, but I don't think we have a shape for it still after all these years, because I hear a lot of my, my friends in that field who are not nuns, who are married and have daughters, and some of them say, she has no idea what we went through. And, you know, a lot of these, we, we were in, you know, parades and demonstrations and all that stuff when all that was, was the way to go. Um, and 
we all kind of smoothed the way for little for girls, but they had no idea of that. And mm. and still, with the emphasis now in the world on materialism and material goods, and I look at my grandnieces, and uh, you know they're wonderful, but they they have no struggle. They don't know. Uh, they just assume everything is open to them. But I think it's only because they haven't really met it yet. Mm. And even when they meet it, it takes a while before you realize what's happening. And uh, I think we're kind of in between times now. Mm. I think some progress has been made, but not what we thought was going to be made. And certainly this is true in the church. I mean, God help us and save us. Mm. It's, it's, that is, uh, I don't think we'll see any change in our lifetime till the whole thing kind of falls apart. You know, I've been thinking about transformation quite a bit since reading the book. And transformation comes when uh, control dissolves, when you no longer have control. And you can't decide when transformation is going to happen. You can't decide how it's going to happen. You just, it begins with a disorder, what, you know, in our business, in our teaching, we call a disorienting dilemma. And we didn't bring it about, but something shifts and we don't know why, and we don't know how to get back and there's no getting back. And I think that shifting has begun, but I think it's going to take a much longer time than I'll be alive, but I, I can see it happening. And uh, I know we're on the road of that kind of, big transformation. Well, one of the things you have witnessed since Vatican II and that renewal time, which now needs to be the transformation time, as you just said, um, was the embracing of the prophetic role of religious women into the dimension of ecology. And I know I work in a a ministry of the Sisters of Mercy here at Rahamim, and one one of the things that I get told all the time by sisters is, if Rahamim doesn't exist as an ecology ministry... Uh, there's no mm-hmm. point to the Sisters of Mercy. But you you uh-huh. witnessed the time, uh, you know, some 35, maybe 40 years ago, when in their vision and mission and chapter statements, religious women were starting to embrace the language of ecology. So can you describe mm-hmm. that scene? Uh, that, that time when we were just becoming aware of the needs of the earth, mm-hmm. I call it, and what was happening to the earth. And that those phrases began to come into our chapter statements. And uh, like other, sta- I have to say this, um, chapters are very high-powered times when we can think about what is current and what we need to do. But where it all falls down is that after the chapter is over and we all have the chapter statements on our cards, you know, um, uh, not as much uh, really cohesive action necessarily comes from chapter statements. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I say that sadly because I see it and I see the enthusiasm and the way they're written in the chapters, but I, I have to say that I don't see once a chapter is over that significant changes are made to really put those chapter statements into actual practice. And I think 
In terms of the ecology statements in the chapters, that's where that fell down. Like I, I know many of the groups went into recycling and you know the normal things that people are doing, but beyond that, I didn't, in any of the groups I work with, not just my own group, I didn't see radical change. You know, I didn't see, oh, let's do this entirely differently. Now, I say that as a generalization, and I'm also aware that there are communities in the United States who have done things slightly more radical than what I'm talking about, like buying or turning their land into tree planting places and 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 acquiring land so that they can save it you know can yeah. save it from development and there have been more in the united states than any other place i think there have been those kinds of big movements that are ecology oriented but not as a generalization of religious women and now in in the developed worlds i i think it's a bit late for that and um because the sisters are struggling just to stay connected to to the statements and are not we don't have enough younger members now to bring about those more radical changes where the numbers are as i'm finding out from some other colleagues who are on, on general leadership teams in rome and they have uh, parts of their community in other countries like uh, indonesia and uh, Bali and places like that, where they have, uh, I, ha I had someone on retreat last week. She, she said she was going to Bali from here. She, she drives up from Chicago every summer, rents the house next to me so she can make retreat with me, and then goes back. She's on their general Franciscan leadership team in Rome. And she said, well, we have 300 young sisters in Bali. 300 and i'm thinking wow that's you know even in the height of them in north america we never had that many but so religious life is taking different forms mm. in different parts of the world and i think in the developed countries ours is just in the process of dissolving a bit and and i have every belief and faith that the values that our foundresses really you know envisioned and worked in their cultures to bring about will take shape in the future mm. uh, i just don't know how and why or who you know but i i totally believe it because it's always been the case so you were does involved. that answer yeah yeah and you were okay you were um very closely involved with so many chapter statements that have been written around the world yes, uh, through your true. facilitation and can you describe a little bit about how you got into this work facilitation and the process facilitation that Margaret Dennis taught you the contemplative yes. practice yeah uh, yes I can and I don't know if you know but Marge Dennis died 10 days ago oh I'm so sorry and uh she's 80 she's 85 and I'm just finishing I'm one of a team that we're having her celebration of life on Sunday. Mm. And so I've been very close to her. She has had Alzheimer's for the last two years mm. and she died suddenly. Um, here's the difference. Up to the time Marge, who was a sister of service, 
and she left the community and got her doctoral doctoral degree at OICE in Toronto, the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. She, um, up, to, up to that time, we mostly had priests who facilitated, well, I wouldn't even say facilitated. They led chapters, they led retreats. We always had priests for everything. Marge developed as part of her doctoral thesis what she called process facilitation, which really uh, taught us to, to trust and use our intuition in how we lead a group. In other words, we, we learn to kind of sense out a group and say, um, okay, this is where this group is. This is where they seem to be going. Uh, and it's called process facilitation because there's not a big formula. She, in other words, she trained us in our, and the, the course of training at that time was four weeks, four separate weeks spread over a year. And, uh, she just encouraged us in creativity, in intuition, in imagination, in all manner of process, uh, ways of processing different things, not just one person sitting and teaching it, not just reading it out of a book, but with uh, body movements, with costumes, with everything was in a circle, not in lines of chairs. Um, she just shook us out of our customary way of doing things, and then she challenged us to go out and do this in our own communities. That's how it began. Mm. And then there was a lot of us, there were many people who loved the course, but really couldn't take it back to where they lived. It was too different from the usual way of doing things. But there were a couple of us whom she spotted uh, the, that she thought we'd really, like if we wanted to, we could really take this on the road. That's really what it was. And, um, and of course, when I went back to the, to the archdiocese and I just couldn't, I couldn't work there after what had happened. She said, well, come up here with me. I have too many uh, invitations for chapters and it's growing and it was all over the world. And she was, you know, she was traveling most of the time. So I, I and another sister uh, moved up there to Huntsville and um, she just, you know, she trained us not only then we had done the course, but in chapters. And it was a very special training to go and do chapters. So as a result, I've been now doing chapters for 30 years and uh, in all parts of the world. And, uh, and now just recently in June, actually, June 15th, I facilitated my last chapter. Mm. I'm stopping the work now because I'm very tired and very, and I want to write about it before I can't write, you know, that yeah. <laughs> before I get into my 80s and I forget most of it. And um, I know at some stage you got onto this word because you keep saying, you keep saying people are getting tired and older and dying out and that sort of thing. And um, I know that a lot of your work later has been to do with what you call completion. Yes. Can you tell us about that? Yes, it's, it's uh, and, you know, uh, uh, what can I say about that? Completion is the word we're using 
when congregations, as many of the ones I've been working with, have reached the point in their discernment when they know they're finished with renewal, okay, that they're not going to get younger women to enter, and they then turn their energies towards whatever the work of completion is for them. Now, the work of completion is also very canonical. And when a community decides we are coming to completion, one of the first things they state is they do not accept any young younger women into the community. And that's a canonical thing mm-hmm. once they announce it. And then they start to get it's like uh, anybody else like they get their they get their affairs in order. They make sure that canonically they are complying with there's there's a whole branch of canon law now that is to do with completion and what a community has to put in place in order to come to completion when the last member of their community dies. Then it's considered that that community is completed in its work. And um, so my work hasn't been in the canonical part of it because I that's not my forte and, and I don't find it life-giving. My work has been when communities start using that language, I facilitate um, exercises and conversations and um, other kinds of activities that help the sisters talk to one another about it and begin to let go of the community and, and accept that it's coming to completion. And some of that is really helping them go back over their lives and and kind of collect the good times and tell stories about one another, tell stories about the older sisters who are gone now, uh, and tell stories of their, their first teaching years and their adventures and their and then, you know, as they move up, um, talking, helping them to talk about what they feel they have given to the world. And what what they have received, not only given but received, and then placing it into that larger context that I referred to earlier, that Dermot um, really talks about, then beginning to stretch out and see our community and what we have done as part of that large unfolding of religious life that is historical and worldwide, kind of. And even, no, not many have have come to this point. I have designed with them a kind of a ritual where we're letting it, we're actually letting it go. And uh, that ritual is very important in this whole thing. And, you know, we live as long as we live, but we let go of the community into that larger unfolding. Why do you think the, the ritual is so important? What, what, what's going on there with the ritual? Oh, the ritual, any ritual to me is, is, is as important or more important than any words I might say. Because a ritual, a ritual is not like a prayer service where every part is planned out. A ritual, as I say in the, in the book, Um, you open a space and you have an intention and you have parts, but 
A ritual invites a deeper awareness and allows for unexpected things to happen. And it um, and it takes longer usual than a prayer service or you know words that will try to say what we want. A ritual includes a part that we cannot predict. That's what I say about a ritual. We set the stage. We kind of invite uh, insights. We invite uh, the unknown. And we ask that we are able to receive and to enter into that unknown uh, with with what we have now. And it's like a ritual opens opens us to the unknown in ways that our minds cannot and um, a ritual to me is is way more sacred than any other kind of prayer. And most of your rituals that you conduct with religious groups, are they um, spontaneous in nature no. or structured? No, they're, they're structured, mm-hmm. but I always, uh, well, they're definitely structured because uh, sisters really need, their lives have been structured, mm. so they're not really... Um, geared to just having you know something unfolding but i always make sure it's like process facilitation i i structure them in a way that leaves room for something unknown or unexpected to come in and that's what process work is you know you have a a loose structure and you invite people to do things and say things and work with things that you don't really know the outcome of and so being a process facilitator, the training is really about moving with the group and not setting up everything so that the group follows what you have laid out. That's the difference. And the same way is is true of ritual. You know, most of what we do in our religious community groups is like a prayer service or we have a sheet of paper and it's all on there and we go through it and all of that. But that's very different. That's not a ritual. Mm. A ritual is we have a broad framework of something and an intention. And we we keep the space open as much as we can and invite people to share and talk about what ha- is happening to them. And out of that, whoever is leading the ritual can either change it or move, but is moving with the group more or moving with what is happening in the group more. And that's what process facilitation is. So it's a natural translation for me, for example, who have been doing process facilitation, to apply those principles to ritual uh, with a group as well. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And then okay. I wanted to ask also about your latest book that came out in 2018, The Luminous Ordinary, Catherine McCauley's oh, Living yeah. Presence of Love. Yes, and, um, strikes me. This is this is quite a different style. Um, it's a very different style. I went to uh, when I had my golden jubilee two years ago, um, and I received all this money for gifts from my <laughs> community. I said, "Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna spend that and go to Ireland again." I taught in Ireland for twelve summers, but I hadn't been back just to be there. So I set up to go to Ireland for Mercy Day. And uh, <clears throat> and when I went there, I spent time, I spent an entire day there in, in Bagot Street. And I'd been there many times, but I had no agenda at this time. And I spent time in Catherine's room. 
it's always very moving for me to spend time in her room, you know, at her preju, at her writing desk. There's some energy I have always found there. And um, so I spent time in her room and um, there was some sense of a presence I had. That's all I can say. And, and I had, when I came home, I it followed me. And what followed me also was that I wanted to write a reflection about how I experienced her, um, kind of in that simple, ordinary way, and to write it for the senior sisters who will no longer read long books. Mm. That's why I printed it as I, first of all, wrote it as I did, second, printed it in big print, because it was for them. And it only came out of, I read, I don't know if you've seen the book of her letters. It's about 400 pages. Yeah. Have you seen that? We have it here in our library. I read it from cover to cover. And that plus my experience in Bagot Street that time in my Golden Jubilee was what I used to kind of try to, to really just, take the essence out of who she was and put it out in such a way that elders could read it easily and um, and to make it a kind of a, a a lighter kind of reflective ordinary human kind of book that's where it came from mm -hmm. what is it about Catherine's life that, um, that you think we can learn from today Catherine's life um, Catherine was direct and she, you know, she was very joyful and carried on a lot in humor and stuff. But she had, for me, she had the, the gift of the essence of what she was about and what we were about or meant to be about. And I think that's what we can learn from Catherine today. That's what any of us can learn. There's so many things around us that we're reading and we're taking things from. But to go into Catherine's life and, and see the consistency with which she responded to different situations, her, her deep spirituality, her trust in God, her, you know, how she didn't need to know everything, she didn't need to control everything. I think her groundedness was in her uh, prayer and her devotion. And if we can, you know, balance our activity out with that depth of spirituality i think that's catherine's best message to us and if you read those letters all of the 400 page book it's so consistent i read it all of it not all of a piece but i read it over three months uh, about half an hour 40 minutes every morning and when you read it that consistently uh, the the themes and the the depth of it kind of appears. It's not something that you can read piecemeal and here and there, but it just really becomes very clear what that line is that she lived mm -hmm. and that I then experienced in learning to kayak against the current. Mm -hmm. It's all about finding the line. It's mm -hmm. finding the line that is going to keep you on your, on your path. That's what it is. Yeah, and that stands in contrast, I think, to what a lot of people are asking these days, which is what would Catherine do 
today. She was <laughs> exactly. a, uh, it's, yeah. a, it's more that, that spiritual depth in that line, coming back to that. Yes. Mm. And again, as you're saying that, it's what I've, I've been experiencing that, you know, the deterior. I call it the deterioration of religious life, the continual doing and with not an equal emphasis on um, communal spiritual, personal and communal spirituality. I think if we can get back, I don't think we will get back to that, but I think whoever, whatever group comes up new in some way will have that more of a balance in those two things. And um, activity and doing seems to be primary right now. And the other thing that that does, which I've seen in chapter after chapter, when the sisters get up in their 80s and 90s and they realize they can't do anymore, it's really difficult for them. And part of my role has been to reassure them that don't worry. Those young ones who are out there on the streets doing things are completely dependent on your prayers mm. and on your, and on your, you know, you can't go out there anymore, but you can pray for them and you can pray for the causes that they're working with. And you can, and, but, you know, persuading them that that is as valuable is very hard work because they're, because, you know, I still, I go to communities and the first question will be, well, what are you doing? Mm. And so it's, the doing thing is has taken precedence, and I'm afraid it's very destructive. Yeah. So, what's the road ahead? I mean, have you have you had any time to contemplate what does transformation mean, and what will whatever we call religious life today be in the world into the future? I don't think we know. Mm. I think. Uh, you know, I think it's important to pay attention to the dissolution, but I also think it's important to hold the space open for whatever the new will be. And along with Dermot, and we we still talk about Dermot and Marco and I are the same age, so we yeah. spent like when I was in Ireland, we had three hours of conversation. I said, "Well, you have me worn out," <laughs> but we won't we won't recognize it as being as being the way we think it is, we think religious life is, I, I don't think we, it won't be anything like what we know or call religious life. I really believe that. And in saying that, I feel like I'm leaving open a great emptiness for something to come. But I'm not going to bring it about. It's that kind of a thing. And that's why my own practice has become, you know, as my energy wears down, my daily practice is more of a contemplative presence of receiving rather than doing, you know, not, I'm, I'm not following these guidelines for this kind of meditation. I'm not making lists. I'm not, I'm just, I'm just present interiorly. And this is the teaching of Robert Sardello and Cynthia Bourgeau, which both of whom have been, I would say my best teachers for about 10 years or longer to get into that contemplative heart where you're you're open to receive something from the greater presence and then whatever you do is going to come from that but you don't really know what it is and as for religious life i think as i say to some groups who i think can take it it's time for us to turn it over to god 
God will bring it about. It's not up to us. Well, I think on that note, we're about ready to wind up. <laughs> yes, I think so. <laughs> Brenda, I'm so grateful to you for this conversation and I'm so privileged to have had it with you. And well, thank you. I, I hope it's what you know what you wanted and can put out yeah it absolutely is and i honestly wish you so well with your going into the forest to find your soul and your contemplative (laughs) um phase this next phase uh, of transformation for yourself as well as all of us (laughs) yes and i expect you know writing will come out of it that will be serving what we have been talking about Mm. i'm just assuming that yeah i very much look forward to that It's lovely to hear your voice again. You too. (laughs) I've so enjoyed this. Thank you very much. The Thresholds team at Rahamim live, work and create this podcast on the lands which have been and always will be Wiradjuri country. We give our respect and gratitude to their elders, past, present and emerging who continue to teach us ancient wisdom for living in harmony within Earth's limits. Rahamim Ecology Centre is an ecological ministry of the Sisters of Mercy of Australia and Papua New Guinea. Facilitating a new worldview for our times and our relationship with the natural world through education, spirituality and advocacy. For more information about us and our programs, please visit www.rahamim, that's R-A-H-A-M for Mary, I-M for Mary, The Thresholds podcast is edited by Anastasia Freeman.